This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories from where we broadcast, and that's the small town of Oxford, Mississippi. And this one comes from a student of the University of Mississippi, Aubrey Riggle. Two months away from graduating high school with a completely clean record, I get put on room suspension. It started with the most rash decision and easily one of the best decisions I have ever made. I bought a puppy. My roommate Macy and I went to Mississippi School of the Arts, a residential magnet school in South Mississippi, and were on the way to Jackson, Mississippi to a concert. We were stopping by Walmart for snacks, but got distracted by a cardboard sign, sloppily written in Sharpie, puppies for sale. Of course, as any two 17-year-old girls would, we stopped to pet the puppies, which a little old woman had in a box in the back of her SUV. They were $400. Three small balls of fur bounced around in the box. Any of the six-week-old Shih Tzus could have fit into the palm of my hand. I reached down to pet the only brown one, who started biting my fingers. I swooned, collecting him into my arms and pleading to my roommate, I need him. We could sneak him into our dorm room, she proposed, originally as a joke, but I took it as approval. I mean, within the last year alone, we had safely hidden a hamster cage and a fishbowl in there already. How much harder could a puppy be? I only had $70 left in my bank account from a job I'd worked over winter break. So I called my mom. $400 is a lot of money, she said, along with a string of other oppositions. Your dad would never agree. You're about to go to college. But he's so cute, mom. I'm at your sister's soccer game. Call me later. She hung up before I could even offer that after working this upcoming summer, I would be able to pay her back. I'm getting this dog today. Please don't sell him, I told the breeder. She agreed, reluctantly, but turned away other potential customers because of my claim on that little brown ball of fluff. My roommate and I devised a plan. The banks were closed, but she had some blank checks from her grandma. To my complete surprise, her grandma agreed, and Macy wrote me a check on loan for $400. Our disbelief turned to excitement. And heads held high, we triumphantly marched back to the breeder. Fed up with our shenanigans, her forehead furrowed and she grunted. I can't take a personal check. Please, ma'am, I promise it's in there. It's my grandma's account, Macy bargained. The breeder actually called her grandma to confirm and agreed saying, fine, but give me your phone numbers and addresses. We scribbled down our contact info onto the check and I spent my last $70 on a crate collar, and a bag of dog food five times the size of my dog. We decided to skip the concert to figure out just how we would sneak the puppy past security and into our dorm room. We found a cardboard box, tucked him inside, and crossed our fingers. We're going to get caught, I thought as we snuck into the building. Dog supplies and hidden puppy in tow. My heart beat fast and my hands trembled but security didn't even look up as we passed by. After safely making it back to our dorm room, we summoned our best friends in the hallway to come meet him. Each teenage girl melted over our illicit roommate as we excitedly recounted our rule-breaking. Our contraband needed a name, 
And after hours of playtime and contemplating, we called him Rebel. Our news was like wildfire, spreading through all seven floors of our dorm hall. I heard, do you really have a dog in your room? At least once per class period. My friends often came by to play with the hamster already, but now every day after the last school bell rang, like mosquitoes to light, a plethora of teenage girls, some who I barely knew, came to see Rebel. For a whole week, Rebel stayed in his crate quietly while I was in class, slept in my bed with me at night, and even got snuck on and off campus inside my purse for walks. Despite our nightly room checks by the floor mom, we just put Rebel in the bathroom, and no one noticed our secret zoo. It seemed we were in the clear. Aubrey Riggle, please come to the principal's office. The school secretary's voice rattled over the intercom. In a cold sweat, I felt the eyes of all of my classmates turn to me. Twelve years of grade school under my belt, and I had never been called to the principal's office until now. My principal, a rosy-cheeked woman with round hips that spilled over the sides of her rolling chair, looked at me squarely across her desk. Aubrey, we found a dog in your dorm room. They caught me. Unsuccessfully controlling my nervous laughter, I asked, did you find the hamster and fish too? She laughed, crying me for more of an explanation. To my disbelief, much more amused than angry. I've had them for about a week. A lady was selling them in the Walmart parking lot. I couldn't say no. The dog's gotta go today, she said with a chuckle. But there was no way I could make the five-hour drive home and back for school the next day. Unable to get rid of Rebel, the school gave him to the dance teacher till next weekend. Placed on room suspension, I was defeated. After my punishment was doled out, my principal, the executive director, and the curious school secretary escorted me to my room to remove Rebel. Even though I was in trouble, my principal cooed at him as he climbed into her lap and licked her face. So what do I need to do about the hamster and fish? I asked her. Her brief look of shock erupted into wild laughter. I thought you were joking. The hamster and fish were placed in the nurse's office until I returned home to my parents, who were not happy about our household's unexpected additions or the $400 check they now had to mail to Macy's grandma. Several weeks later, Rebel was allowed, this time with the school's permission, to be my escort to senior prom. He was a local celebrity, and my friends and I took turns spinning him around on the dance floor. Now... Four years later, I have collected many more memories with Rebel, and our memory at Mississippi School of the Arts has not faded, as administrators still tell our story to every new class as a precautionary tale. And thank you, Arby Riggle, for that story. Her story, Rebel's story, and a great pet story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and up next, it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And we tell these stories because what we have here in this country, my goodness, the rights we have, the interests that are protected from our property rights, which are very important, right down to our most basic civil rights from free speech and right through the criminal procedure rights, the right to an attorney and the right to a speedy trial. These are not normal things in other places around the world. And our founders, well, it's their work that enshrined these rights and the separation of powers that created this great country. And that's why we tell these rule of law stories. And up next, our own Monty Montgomery with a rule of law story you won't believe. James King was born and raised in Michigan, and that's where our story begins, in the state's second largest city, Grand Rapids. Summer of 2014, I was, I think, 21 years old at the time, going to school at Grand Valley State University. I had an internship at a place called The Geek Group. I also had a summer job as a low-voltage technician. I got out of that job a little bit early that day. I stopped at my house, for made some lunch, and then I walked to my internship. It was only about six blocks away, um, but I didn't make it there. I didn't make it all, all six blocks. I made it about four blocks, and then I was stopped by two plainclothes men uh, who had asked me who I was. When they asked me who I was, I, um, perhaps being a little bit naive, but I've, I've always been a little bit pro-social, so I told them who I was. I said, hey, I'm James. What, what's, what's going on? What's up? They, they, their immediate response to me telling them who I was was, is that your real name? And I said, yes, that's my real name. And then uh, they asked if I had my wallet on me. I kind of got a weird vibe from these guys almost immediately. So I said no, which was not the truth. I did have my wallet on me, but I didn't really want to tell strangers that. So I said no. And then one of the guys uh, boxed me out, or one guy like, had me step towards him and the other guy went around side me and then I was between the two of them. And, and one man said, oh, oh, if that's true, then what's in your back pocket? And I'm like, okay, I'm pretty uncomfortable right now. Um, and I was just like, well, it's really none of your business. Um, but the one guy reached into my pants and took my wallet out of, out of my pocket. That was the point where I thought that I was being mugged. The, the men that did this didn't introduce themselves. Um, I didn't know who they were or what they were after. Um, so I thought I was being mugged and, and I actually yelled out, are you guys mugging me? And I, and I tried to run, which is where this all goes sideways in a hurry. Pretty much made it about four steps and it was tackled to the ground. At that point in time, I started screaming and, and yelling for anybody that was nearby to help, call the police. I was yelling, yelling for the police over and over again. A fight ensued for quite a while. I, I was not fighting them, but I was fighting to get away. And I was eventually just uh, beaten unconscious and, and put in chokehold and, and, and uh, blacked out. And when the when uniformed police officer showed up, I thought that I was saved. I thought, you know, I thought, thank God they're here. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to. I'm going to. I thought I was going to die. So you know, I was relieved. And then very surprised when they arrested me and um, didn't arrest the people that were assaulting me. Because the men who assaulted James weren't muggers. So this was an undercover fugitive task force, a joint task force between a federal agent and a uh, Grand Rapids City police detective. 
who had caught the wrong guy. Having seen the person they were looking for uh, much later on, I, I look absolutely nothing like him. They were working off of a license photo and a, like an eight-year-old Facebook photo. So their, their information was exceedingly bad for the job that they were trying to do. I should probably back up and mention that instead of saying, sorry, we were wrong, we got the wrong guy, we shouldn't have done that, they charged me with three felonies. A felonious assault, fleeing and eluding, and assaulting a, fe a federal officer. Beaten and battered, James was taken to the hospital, still confused about what exactly was happening. I went right from being beaten to uh, being cuffed and put in the back of an ambulance. So I don't really, I, I don't think I pieced it together until much later when I was, I was put in jail after the hospital and then um, was very confused for, for more than a few days. I'm gonna take a moment to, to sort of talk about this hospital scenario because it's something that I've sort of ruminated about quite a bit in the, in the last six and a half years. But I remember being, uh, I was in the hospital bed and I, and I was handcuffed to the bed and there was a uniformed officer there that was in charge of just watching me. And we had struck up a conversation and we got to know each other a little bit. He had a daughter that was going to Grand Valley, same school that I went to. And he, I don't think it took him very long to realize that the situation I was in was not right and I didn't belong there. Uh, and what happened to me was not okay. I remember he loosened the cuffs on me and, and was just overall very nice to me up until one of the, the Granville City Police Detective, his partner, came into my hospital room and, and sort of made some derogatory comments toward me and then took my notepad that I had at the time. Because I knew, I knew I was in trouble. I didn't know what kind of trouble, but I, so I started taking notes as best I could to recollect everything that happened. And he took that notebook from me, um, never to get that back. Um, but it, it was a weird, I could feel the tension in the room as that uniformed police officer who was sort of you know, understanding that what was happening to me wasn't right. When the other person was in the room, he wouldn't look at me and he wouldn't, um, wouldn't really speak up or speak his mind as if, you know, it's sort of like, um, I don't know how to say it, like almost like you're in a fraternity, you know, and, and you can't uh, speak out against one of your own. When he left, that uniform officer that was in charge of watching me, I saw him like want to look towards me and say, I'm so sorry that this happened and I wish you the best, but because there was other police officers there, he didn't. And I saw that moment of hesitation and I thought about it so much because in a weird way, I, I feel bad for him, uh, for, for having to see his, the people he works with do that to people and, and get away with it and be okay with it. I can barely begin to describe the amount of stress that I was under. Between the time I was charged put in jail, arraigned, bailed out, and, and then I couldn't leave the state and I had to wait, I think, six months before the criminal trial. So that whole time, and I was trying to go to school, I was trying to be a student, while the whole time thinking, I may go to prison for crimes I didn't commit. So that was certainly some of the most stressful times in my entire life. And, and in hindsight, too, it's one of those things where I couldn't really tell anybody about it because it was such a bizarre thing that nobody really understood. Um, I, you know, I had some people that would, when hear about it, they would be like, oh, oh I, I bet that's not the whole story, you know, what did you really do? That kind of thing doesn't really happen, you know. 
and in some sense that's that's understandable because it sounds it's such a crazy story and, and to, to have it happen to me and I've never met anybody else that has that happened to him so there's no you know I don't have any a sounding board for this and I, and I haven't for for six and a half years then came the criminal trial against James the first day of the trial the prosecution goes first so I had to sit there and listen without any avenue of having people understand that that what they're saying was not true at all basically referring to me as a, a growling animal like uh, a vicious criminal and, and that I um, spun around on them and assaulted them and, and all these just ludicrous statements that it's insane to me that you can work for the public as a police officer and be willing to get on stand and take an oath and lie through your teeth because you don't want to admit that you made a mistake. So the, at the end of the second day of the trial, the jury went into deliberation and my attorney told me that he didn't know how long it would take. It could take anywhere from a few minutes to a few days to a few weeks. So I went home and I, I don't think I was home for more than 20 minutes and my attorney called me and said, hey, get back to the courthouse right now. And so I had, uh, I actually beat my parents and my family back to the courthouse and then the jury four person stood up and said on all three counts um, we find the defendant not guilty and right at that moment my family was coming into the courthouse because I had called them and told them that they were gonna make the decision and they weren't there to hear it but they saw what was happening they saw the hugs and and uh, so they I think there was a, a wave of extreme emotion uh, it was pretty intense and after all that, um, when I was going to walk out of the courthouse, one of the, the jurors came up to me, an, an older woman, and she said, she gave me a hug and said, I'm so sorry for what those officers put you through. She said, I knew the whole time that you had not done anything wrong. <laughs> Here's James lawyer Patrick Giacomo of the Institute for Justice with why they decided to open up a civil case against the officers who beat James and the astounding legal hurdles they faced. Pretty much from top to bottom, what these officers did was unconstitutional. Uh, they didn't have a reasonable basis to mistake James for the fugitive, which means that they had no reasonable basis to stop him at all, let alone arrest him or beat him up. Basically, the Constitution requires that officers have probable cause to arrest you for a crime. And if they don't have probable cause, their taking you into custody is unconstitutional. And similarly, if they use excessive force against you, even if they do have probable cause, that's unconstitutional. Here, the police had no reasonable suspicion to stop James in the first place, no probable cause to arrest him, and then they exceeded whatever restrictions on force there might have been, even if he had been the fugitive that they were looking for, um, when they tackled him, choked him unconscious, and beat him severely in the head and face. However, there's this wonderful and terrifying doctrine of qualified immunity that the police get to hide behind. So qualified immunity is a relatively recent invention. Basically from the founding up until the middle of the 20th century, government officials were strictly liable when they violated your constitutional rights, which means they didn't have any excuse. The point that the courts drove home was, we're here to decide the law, and the question of law is whether this person violated your constitutional rights, and if they did, we're going to assign 
damages for your injury, and then if they acted in good faith, they can ask Congress or their employer to indemnify them by paying them back the damages owed. But in the middle of the 20th century, the Supreme Court carved out its first exception, which it called qualified immunity. And that's very different from the qualified immunity we have today. But in that case, the court basically said, if someone acts reasonably and in good faith, which means reasonably is any person would know that what we did was okay, and good faith was I actually believed what was happening was okay, then an officer is entitled to qualified immunity, meaning you can't get any damages from them, even though they violated your constitutional rights. But in the 1980s, the Supreme Court basically inverted that in a case called um, Harlow versus Fitzgerald. And they said, you know, it's really a lot of trouble to adjudicate these cases because we're looking into whether someone had good faith. And so instead, what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the subjective requirement. Any government official, whether it's state or federal, police or non-police, it doesn't really matter. If you allege that they violated your constitutional rights, they can assert qualified immunity, and then the burden is on you to provide a specific case where a court has said basically exactly what those officials did is in fact a constitutional violation. And so the way that it comes in here is we filed a civil rights lawsuit against these officers, and we said when they did what they did to James, they violated his Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And the officers just said, we get qualified immunity and you can't find another case that's specific enough that shows that at every step of the way along our interaction with James, we were violating his constitutional rights. Which is crazy, because to prevent the police officers from simply getting qualified immunity and your constitutional rights hearing their day in court, you have to cite a past case that's almost perfectly identical to your own. And if there's tiny inconsequential differences such as if you were laying down and the person in the past case was standing up when you were detained, that's different enough that you can't cite it as precedent. The police officers get qualified immunity, and your case and your rights get thrown out. The theoretical basis behind all of this was that they didn't want government officials to you know, be apprehensive about doing their job because they might get sued, and they didn't want people to act reasonably and end up being held liable for it just because they happen to technically violate the Constitution. And the main problem with that is that that is a policy judgment that's supposed to be made by Congress. And in fact, when Congress passed the Civil Rights Statute in the late 19th century after the Civil War, it didn't create any defense like we see today with qualified immunity. It's very frustrating because you're kind of starting from a weird position, right, where where the premise of anything like qualified immunity is that the Constitution shouldn't apply unless. But the entire purpose of the Constitution is to place limits on the government and the things that it can do. And so it makes very little sense to say, yes, the Constitution, which is the law that governs the people who govern us, the Constitution says these people can't do these things, and they did these things, but... We shouldn't hold them accountable because they didn't know they shouldn't do those things. And you just have to take a step back and realize, well, that's that's not how the law works. I mean, if if I violate the law and I didn't know I was committing a crime, that's no defense to me. They know that they aren't accountable. And when you're not accountable, you you are above the law Um, that the law is there to hold people to account. And the way it's written right now, this doctrines of qualified immunity, these are extrajudicial and they're um, immoral. So the rule of law is completely out the window on these cases. 
But nevertheless, with the help of the Institute for Justice, James' case pushed forward. The way that played out in the district court, which is the lower court here, the federal trial court, the court agreed with them and it said there's no constitutional violations here and the officers are entitled to qualified immunity, so I'm going to throw James's case out. Now, we appealed that uh, decision to the Sixth Circuit, which is the intermediate uh, court between the trial court and the U.S. Supreme Court, and we showed them all the cases that we'd found, and they actually reversed, which is a fairly miraculous outcome in the issue of qualified immunity because courts tend to favor granting qualified immunities. The thing about qualified immunity is it prevents the court from ever reaching the constitutional question. They can do, they can look at the constitutional question if they want to, but they don't have to. And so the frustrating thing is that in a lot of cases involving qualified immunity, a court will throw the case out without ever saying whether officers violated someone's constitutional rights or not. Today, James' case sits before the Supreme Court to be decided, along six years after he was beaten on the streets of Grand Rapids. But despite the wait, James thinks he's lucky. My family was as supportive of me as they, as they possibly could have in every way. I didn't come from means. Most people would not be able to afford this. And if, if I didn't have the Institute of Justice representing me, and before that, Miller Johnson, uh, pro bono, I, I would have not been able to fiscally um, pursue this litigation at all um, but uh, you know my, my aunt Leanne bought me a suit for the trial my parents you know spent my dad uh, took out his uh, 401k cashed out his 401k for me to get me out of jail so yeah they, they were certainly there for me and it was a pretty tumultuous time for all of us emotionally it's crazy to say that I'm lucky but but I am because I have good representation I'm not in jail and I wasn't killed and those <laughs> Those are not always the case for people that this has happened to. And what a story, and thanks so much to James for telling it, for his lawyer, Patrick Giacomo. My goodness, the work the folks at the Institute for Justice do, and they help defend people's civil rights, and not just on the criminal rights front, but on the civil rights front, particularly in the civil courts, and then on the property rights front, because if the state seizes your property through some rule or regulation... Well, that's a civil right, too. And my goodness, most cops are good. Most do a really good and hard job. When I was in law school, the arguments we had over qualified immunity were some of the most difficult. Because when a cop goes out, we're putting him in harm's way. We're literally throwing him into a place where he's got to make a lot of judgment calls. So there are good arguments for qualified immunity, and there are bad ones. But ultimately, we're always trying to make good cops better. And so many of the rules of our Constitution just do that. Because there are rules for cops and limits, and in a lot of other places and a lot of other times there weren't. In a lot of other countries, the cops are the enemy. Here, there are neighbors and friends. And again, there are some bad ones out there, and that's why we have rule of law, because they have to be punished as well. Another of our great rule of law stories, James King's story, here on Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business and innovation, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your stories. Send your best stories, your family stories, personal stories, stories about love and loss and life, courage, any subject at all. Funny stories. A good toast, by the way. A great toast at a wedding. Love to hear anything or everything you have. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our Better Healthcare at Lower Cost series, sponsored by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next edition. We lost my mom 10 years ago. She was really healthy. She was actually working out at the gym at the time when she dropped a bag uh, from overhead and it hit her clavicle somewhat lightly and it clavicle fractured, which was really surprising because clavicles aren't supposed to fracture. And they went in and they found out that she had a tumor in it and that she had stage four cancer. She had tumors all over her body. We're listening to entrepreneur, investor, and son, Joe Lonsdale. She'd been complaining a little bit about some pain after an operation, and the doctor told her it was, just, it was probably nothing as normal to have some pain, but it turned out the pain was a, was a huge tumor in her liver. So it was pretty horrible. I was in my mid-20s at the time, and we all took off some time to spend with her. I wish I'd taken off a lot more time, because we only, we only had her for three months. We thought we'd have her for maybe a year. But she, she passed away pretty quickly, so it was a really big shock. And I, you know, I was already really close with my family, but it brought us even closer. Anyone who's ever lost a parent, it kind of shifts the nature of the world a little bit. My mom was kind of like the bedrock in the family, so it really, it really fundamentally changes things. I honestly felt really angry at myself for not having done more in the area of cancer and the area of biology before I found out about this. As a young kid, my father coached our chess team, and, and we were the state chess champions and national chess champions, and that gave us a lot of confidence. And, I think it's probably good for kids' memory, too. I, I always thought I was really good at chess, but my dad still wins the state chess championship. He's coaching the same team you know, for fun 30 years later, so, so it probably wasn't me. It was probably him. It also sounds like this father-son duo from Silicon Valley were some real dorks. <laughs> well, and this is probably politically incorrect, but the area is about 50% Asian, so, so I think it was a more studious area, right? So it wasn't that unusual to be studying hard. If anything, when there were bullies at school, my job was to defend my friends from the bullies because I was a little bit of like a bigger athletic kid relative to some of my friends who were doing math and chess with me. And, and I you know, became good friends with, with some of these kids too when, you, when you, they try to bully you and your little boys get in fights. And after you have a fight, you become friends. I think that's a natural thing for young boys. I don't know these days, maybe that's politically incorrect. But, uh, but, you know, it was actually really funny. MC Hammer moved next door to us. You know who MC Hammer is from back then? He was really famous. There's a middle-class neighborhood he moved in. He brought a lot of his nieces and nephews who'd come from a not a very good part of town. And some of them began, ended up becoming bullies of my friends. But then when we fought back with the young men, we actually became good friends with them, too. So it was an interesting upbringing. Joe went on to Stanford in 2000. And while there, he interned for this little company that had this crazy vision of creating what they called the new world currency, whatever that means. Some foreign idea of person-to-person payments on the web that doesn't sound so foreign now, but sounds like PayPal. I think there were a lot of iconoclasts 
at the company. I think that the sort of people that Peter and Elon. Uh, Peter as in Peter Thiel, later the first investor in Facebook. And Elon as in the only Elon I know. I mean, I don't actually know Elon Musk. We're friends with people who have strong opinions that were different than the mainstream. And these are people who were very ambitious, hard workers who wanted to build things. I think the culture brought together a lot of people who, in another sense, might have each founded their own companies. And instead, they were all working together. Their nerdy, workaholic, anti-jock pro-reading, sleep-behind-your-desk culture, and whom it attracted, became so infamous that the outside world began calling it by its own name, the PayPal Mafia. <laughs> Wouldn't you want to work somewhere that feels like a mafia? And for them, the mafia continued long past they all left PayPal, building more companies together and even when not, investing in each other's dreams of businesses that could make the world better. And, and obviously it taught people a lot being there because so many of my friends were there left and they started companies like LinkedIn and Yelp and YouTube. And of course, Elon started Tesla and SpaceX. And they're really like 15 or $16 billion companies started by the people there. And I think it was because it was just such a creative place where they all learned so quickly that they could take those lessons and bring them to their next companies. Some pretty decent motivation for this kid, Joe Lonsdale, to keep up with them. I was just a kid there. I was one of the youngest guys. A kid who would go on to build three different companies, Adapar, OpenGov, and Palantir, the last of which is valued at $21 billion. And with this success, Joe now freely uses his own capital and that of other investors at his firm 8VC to help budding entrepreneurs who are where he used to be, someone with a dream and in need of some capital. If you're gonna be investing in technology, if you wanna have big wins, it has to be something that's newly possible. So you can't invest in Google now, it's probably much too late, there's already a really good Google. If you wanna invest in Uber or Lyft, you know, ride-sharing companies, well, they've been possible for 10 years. If you tried to invest in Uber in 2000, that doesn't make any sense, there's no mobile phone ecosystem. When Steve Jobs and these guys create the mobile ecosystem, Uber becomes possible some point in the next few years, that's when you have to invest in ride sharing, right? So the question is, as an investor, is what's possible now that wasn't possible five years ago or 10 years ago? And what's possible now in healthcare is almost unbelievable. By simply looking at a sample of your saliva, scientists can sequence your unique DNA, which means that they can see the order of your genes and see if there's any variations from what's normal and could be a red flag for a disease. And one day, Joe's friend Elod Gill brought him even better news. He said, Joe, I think with the, with the latest declines in sequencing costs, we're gonna be able to measure people's risks for different types of cancer, for different types of cardiovascular things. And it's only gonna cost a couple hundred dollars, maybe less. And right now in the market, it costs $6,000 to get your risk measured. So no one actually knows their risk, but if it's only a couple hundred dollars, it'd be worth it for everyone to do it because you'd actually be able to save a lot of lives. It turns out, for example, two and a half percent of women have some really high percent chance of getting cancer. And there's ways that if you know that, that it's actionable. You can do things to protect yourself. You can do things to, to, to make it so you don't die as young. And I was looking at the numbers with him. And I said, wow, this is really amazing. And he's, he's such a talented guy. I knew he'd be able to build a top team. So I led the first major round of financing along with another big fund, Coastal at the time. And he gives me a few free tests as they're coming out. It's like, we're just starting to do these tests. You should try it out. It, 
checks 37 genes and let you know if you have you know, wrists or wrists or not. And I, and I talked to Taylor about it. Joe's wife. I had these tests at home and she's like, oh, I'll take it and see what it is just to support it. And she took the test and unfortunately it came back that she has an 80% chance risk of getting cancer by the time she's in her 60s, which is obviously terrifying. Uh, but there's also the counselors they have and they talk to her and there's you know all sorts of family planning we're doing. It's one reason we're having kids sooner, of course, because you can get the kids sooner and you can take certain actions to protect yourself once you've had kids. And so he said, wow, this is really important. You know, you have this gene, you better have your family check, check into it too. And so we had a, several people in our family took the test, you know, $200 each is not, not a big cost. And unfortunately, her mother came up having the same gene, which makes sense. She got it from her mother's side. And we had no idea that actually, we had some cancer on her mom's side. We had no idea there was this really high risk on that side of the family. And so the, her mom went and saw her doctor. You know, they asked, she asked the doctor, what do I do? You know, is there anything we should know? And the doctor said, oh, wow, that's, that's weird. I've never heard of this before that someone just go and take the test, but that does seem like a risk. We should probably take your ovaries out just in case, but you know, you're totally fine. You're healthy. I wouldn't worry about it. But yeah, come in next month, we'll have the procedure. It's a good thing to do. And so she comes in the next month to have the procedure and they cut in and take the ovaries out and they discover like stage 3B or 3C cancer. So it's, it's not quite stage four, but it's pretty late stage cancer. It's terrifying that we only found it because she was having this you know preventative procedure. And it turns out, fortunately, it was early enough that it looks like she's okay right now. We've, you know, she had to cut a bunch of it out and had to do a bunch of chemo and and stuff, but she's, she's doing really well. She's here taking care of our daughter a lot and interacting with our family. And she definitely wouldn't be here with us today if we hadn't done this $200 test. And if Joe hadn't invested in this life-saving company that he couldn't have known would save the life of someone in his family, Joe's mom is gone, but she was in the front of his mind when he made this investment. You realize that she's still with you in a lot of ways and that everything that she taught and inculcated and made you into who you are is still there even though she's gone so i guess in some ways you kind of still feel her a lot and great job as always alex and the company by the way the testing company is color genomics and joe lonsdale's story is a story of capital at work human capital at work human stories at work to make life better, to add value to people's lives, and in the end, in Joe's case, with his mom in mind, to save lives, his own families, and, well, in the end, societies too, everyone's, not just in America, but across the world. And that's what Americans do, that's what American capital does. In the end, it unleashes innovation, improves lives, adds value, and changes the world. Joe Lonsdale's story, in a way, his mom's story, here, on our American stories. And as always, our Better Health at Lower Cost series is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And again, that was Color Genomics. Go to color.com to learn more. Again, Joe Lonsdale's story, his mom's story, here on our American stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, but our favorite subject is American history, 
and we tell stories about almost every aspect of that history. And that's from sports to the arts to business, and of course, wars and everything in between. And every year, more than 500,000 middle and high school students participate in something called National History Day, a worldwide competition where students create an original history project of their choice. And today, Alex Cortez brings us the story of a 14-year-old winner of the middle school paper competition. Max Greenstein has participated in National History Day for three years, and he's chosen some fascinating topics. My first project was about the Red Cross and the Holocaust. Famously, the Red Cross almost ignored all of the atrocities being committed by Nazi Germany against the Jews and the Roma and a lot of other groups. So that was an interesting story. The theme that year was conflict and compromise. The second project I did, the theme was triumph and tragedy. So I wrote about Bobby Fischer. Uh, Bobby Fischer was a famous American chess player in the 70s and 60s. Uh, He's widely considered to be one of, if not the best chess players of history. Famously, in 1972, he beat Boris Spassky, who was a Soviet chess player. And that was a, a large global relations moment, a triumph for the U.S., but ultimately he had very severe schizophrenia. Uh, although he was a Jew, he was a, a huge anti-Semite. He was included in a, an encyclopedia published by a rabbi, but he sent a very angry letter to this rabbi saying that he didn't want to be included because he wasn't a Jew. Also, after 9-11, he called into a Filipino radio station and was talking about how uh, the Jews, he thought, caused... 9-11. The, the, the theme this year was breaking barriers in history. So with that theme, I decided to write about the Fifth Circuit Four. The Fifth Circuit Four were a group of four judges on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the Deep South. At the time, it stretched from Texas to Florida The Fifth Circuit Four were notable for enforcing famous Supreme Court decisions like Brown versus the Board of Education. And without the Fifth Circuit Four enforcing these decisions, I think that they would have largely been ignored in the segregated Deep South. One of the most staunch segregationists of the entire Fifth Circuit was named Ben Cameron. And Ben Cameron decided to give the Fifth Circuit Four the name the Fifth Circuit Four because in the Bible, there's a story about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Ben Cameron believed that in helping to integrate the South, the Fifth Circuit Four were each bringing an end to the segregationist world. Max first wrote about the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board decision that ended segregation in schools and the challenge of the ruling not declaring a specific plan for desegregation. Mansfield is near Fort Worth, Texas, and it had a segregated school system. There was no high school for African Americans, so every day students would have to be bused an hour each way to Fort Worth, 
which was obviously very arduous for the the students and their families. So they they sued to integrate Mansfield High School. On the night that the Fifth Circuit ordered that Mansfield High School students should be allowed to enter to the school to register, there were massive riots throughout the city with KKK hoods. There was an effigy of an African-American that was burned on the facade of Mansfield High School. Ultimately, all of the African-American students and their families were too intimidated to enter into Mansfield High School to register because of all of the violence. And NAACP membership in Mansfield fell dramatically because of white racist intimidation. So it was one of the Fifth Circuit's first cases of enforcing Brown, but it wasn't necessarily their most successful. So a lot of people know about James Meredith. He was a university student. He'd also had a brief stint in the armed forces. And he wanted to enroll at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. And he was highly qualified. He had credits from other accredited institutions. So ostensibly, there was no reason for the University of Mississippi not to accept him, except that the University of Mississippi had a racist admissions policy that required all students to submit a recommendation from an alumni. And since James Meredith and a lot of other African-American students didn't know any alumni willing to recommend them because no African-Americans had ever gone to the school, James Meredith couldn't be admitted. So he sued the university and the Fifth Circuit ordered in an injunction that the University of Mississippi admit him. And on the night that James Meredith was supposed to go to the registrar's office, there were massive riots, racist riots throughout the school. And he had to be escorted by an entourage of armed U.S. Marshals and National Guard soldiers. And then, famously, the then-governor of Mississippi, Ross Barnett, held himself against the door of the University of Mississippi after leading the protest outside so that James Meredith could not enter physically the registrar's office. And you're listening to Max Greenstein tell the story of James Meredith and, of course, the story of the four judges who helped usher in desegregation in the Deep South. And by the way, we broadcast in Oxford, Mississippi, home to Ole Miss, and we're about an hour south of Memphis. An important story for this town, uh, for this state, and for the country to hear and to never forget. When we come back, more of this story, this tragic story, and the story of the great original sin of this country, which of course is racism and slavery, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Max Greenstein's story on his winning National History Day paper about the Fifth Circuit, the four judges who helped usher in desegregation in the Deep South. We return to Max 
on black student James Meredith trying to register at Ole Miss, but the racist governor, Ross Barnett, was literally blocking the door. He had to be forcibly removed by the soldiers accompanying James Meredith. And although James Meredith now was a student, the the battle was far from over. The Fifth Circuit held Ross Barnett, the governor, in contempt of court because he was trying to stop an injunction, a federal injunction, for James Meredith to enter the school. So the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ultimately upheld the Fifth Circuit's ruling that Ross Barnett was in contempt of court, and he was ordered to pay a a large fine. So after the Voting Rights Act was passed in the early 60s, making racial discrimination in voting illegal. The state of Louisiana updated their voting requirements to register to vote so that it wouldn't seem segregationist. They had a new test where you had to be able to interpret any section of the U.S. Constitution given to you at random. But what the state of Louisiana did is they systematically trained registrars to give African Americans much more difficult passages to explain than white registrants, so that you know statistically less African Americans would uh, get the uh, right to vote. So the U.S. Justice Department sued because it was blatantly in violation of the Voting Rights Act, and then the state of Louisiana updated their voting requirements. They said, so if you don't want us to give people passages, we can just pick them at random. So they would have a hat at the registrar's office to get the right to vote, and uh, it would have passages in it. But the Fifth Circuit said that the state of Louisiana couldn't do this because both tests, the one before the Justice Department sued and the one after, were racist because all of the white electorate who had registered to vote prior to the passage of the Voting Rights Act were exempt. So they didn't have to take any test. So the entire thing about tests and explaining the Constitution was abolished by the Fifth Circuit's four. Nicholas Kottenbach was an attorney general, and he did say if you hadn't had those judges on the Fifth Circuit, you would have had much more in the way of demonstrations, violence, repressions, revolution. And that may be too strong a word, but it was moving in that direction. I think that another quote, uh, perhaps even more poignant, was by Ramsey Clark, who was the attorney general under LBJ. And he said that the Fifth Circuit did something that the Supreme Court couldn't do that they brought racial change to the Deep South a generation sooner than the Supreme Court could have done it. I was curious how Max heard about this heroic Fifth Circuit for in the first place. I had never heard of them before his paper. Uh, I was on a family vacation in uh, New Orleans, which isn't that far of a drive from Houston where I'm from, and I noticed that the federal courthouse there is called the John Minor Wisdom Courthouse. So I read a plaque outside about who John Minor Wisdom was, and I always thought that that was an interesting story because a lot of the other three judges, Brown, Tuttle, and Reeves, had experiences in their prior lives that led them to take an integrationist stance, 
but John Minor Wisdom was really in like the upper echelon of the New Orleans social circles. His father was a very wealthy cotton broker in New Orleans. So I thought it was interesting that John Minor Wisdom was in such an integrationist judge. So I decided uh, that in fitting with the theme this year, Breaking Barriers in History, I would write about him and his colleagues. John Brown was from the Midwest, and he went to school in Michigan, uh, went to university in Michigan. The town where he was from in the Midwest only had one African-American who was his barber. So while he did grow up around racism, it wasn't as large and the segregation wasn't as observable as it was in the jurisdiction of the Fifth Circuit. So after he went to law school, he moved to Houston, Texas, where I'm from, to specialize in admiralty law. Uh, That's one of the largest types of law that the Fifth Circuit covered then and still does cover about disputes over trading, uh, obviously since Houston has a very large port. So once he was examining a African-American witness in an admiralty dispute, and he addressed the witness, obviously, as, as you would by Mr., and there were gasps around the courtroom. A lot of the white observers and the other lawyers were very surprised because at the time, uh, most lawyers wouldn't give African-Americans that dignity of being Mr. To me, the most interesting event in one of the judges' past was Richard Reeves, the judge on the floor from Alabama, uh, appointed by Truman. Richard Reeves obviously grew up in Alabama around a lot of segregation. But in World War II, he sent a, his son went away to fight in the Pacific Front. And when his son came back, he, he recounted to his father all of the stories about how valiantly and heroically African-Americans had given up their lives to fight for the U.S. So Richard Reeves started to reconsider the segregation that he had grown up around. And in the late 40s, Richard Reeves' son, the one who was a soldier, died in a car crash. So Richard Reeves decided then to accept any federal judicial appointment. He wasn't going to at first because he was going to start a law firm with his son. But he then decided to accept any federal judicial appointment to uphold the legacy and the, the lessons that his son had taught him. His son's grave was desecrated by the KKK after his father became a, an integrationist judge. There were bombings. There were bombings of their houses and people shot at their houses with shotguns. John Minor Wisdom received so many hateful calls and death threats throughout the entire night. His phone was constantly ringing that he had to completely disconnect his landline. And he gave instructions to his daughter who lived nearby that if uh, they needed anything, they would just come to their house. And John Minor Wisdom's dogs were repeatedly poisoned, also by the KKK. I think that one of the important instruments that allowed the Fifth Circuit Four 
to take such a controversial stance in the South about integration and segregation was that they were appointed for life. Because if they were elected, then a lot of politicians would be concerned about making decisions that they thought would help get them reelected. So in the case of a judge from the Deep South, it would probably be segregationist decisions because of how segregationist the Deep South then was. But since the Fifth Circuit Four were all appointed for life, they were able to take as controversial of a stance as they wanted to because the only way that they could have been ousted from office was impeachment and they didn't do anything impeachable. And you've been listening to Max Greenstein tell the story of four judges who helped usher in desegregation in the Deep South. And my goodness, they risked all. And it is so true. It's our Constitution itself that allows for these things. And the genius of having these rights that are enforceable against the majority, against elections, from free speech to discrimination, the majority cannot rule. And our judges are protected by lifetime appointments. And that is the critical role that the Constitution itself plays in all of these things. To remedy the sins of the past, we turn to our own most sacred document to do it. The story of four courageous judges and how they helped shape and change this great country and fix and repair the original sin of racism and slavery here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to learn more about National History Day and becoming a part of it, go to nhd.org. And thanks to our friends in Washington, D.C., you know who you are for putting us on to this terrific organization. This is Our American Story. Hi, this is Robbie from Our American Stories. If you've got a story to tell, well, we're here to help you tell it. Shoot us an email at yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's your story at oanetwork.org. We'll have you record it, produce it up, and send it out over the airwaves. After all, you're the hour in our American stories. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacre Blue. It's written and hosted by Ted Bolliker. Sacre Bleu! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines, but it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo, hello to Gallo wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. 
the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get rippled. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger is not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when... In 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California in a blind taste test judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs. They would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. It's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else, the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. <laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gergic was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine, and I liked When Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything. I suggest that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gergich's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder, given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land 
of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formeau headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? An atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create many things that have changed, really, the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, a process Gurgic helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France, compared to here, that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules. Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't done in France. But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game. And that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com. And the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Sacre Bleu! Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise, and just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding, or credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, our American Dreamers series, which is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And they're working hard in Washington, D.C. and state capitals across this country trying to work for policies that help small business owners become bigger business owners and get their part of the American dream. And now we bring you a powerful immigrant story. My name is Gladys Gonzalez, and I was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. My life hasn't been easy, and maybe because of that, I learned many lessons. I have learned that life can change from night to day, for better or for worse, like it happened to me when I was working in Colombia, and I was so happy there. I had a VP position for a bank with headquarters in New York at the time of the drug dealers war. In 91, the first drug dealer had to come to the States in extradition. Our view is the right approach is to bring to justice narcotics traffickers to uh, coordinate and cooperate as best as we can with Colombia. The drug dealers said for every drug dealer that you send to the United States, we are gonna kill seven Americans or people that works for Americans. And at that point, the bank decided to close business in Colombia. I had been working for them already nine years. It was a night life. My salary was in dollars. So I had a very good life. I had time to share with my family. It was beautiful. But unfortunately, I had to leave the country. So I decided to move to Utah. I really had a hard life in the United States at the beginning. I had this hope that because I was a executive in an American bank in Colombia, I will be able to get a good job soon here. But it didn't happen. I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have a title from the United States, only from Colombia. So I ended up cleaning floors. And for that, I was very qualified. <laughs> I started from the very bottom of the ladder. I had three jobs at the same time. One of my jobs was taking care of people with disabilities. When I was finished with that job, I would go to my second job, that was to clean offices. Then I would go home to sleep for a couple of hours and get up the next day to start my routine again. On Saturdays, I had my third job, delivering bundles of newspapers to kids, carriers, so they could drop the newspapers in their neighborhoods. I learned firsthand how hard the life of an immigrant could be. Many times I remember my kids telling me, Mom, 
what would have been worse for us to stay in our country facing the drug dealers and guerrilla war or moving to USA to face this tough life? And I will tell them, don't worry, we will make our way out of this someday. We just need to be patient. I got to the conclusion that only having a business, I will be able to succeed. And I started looking what type of business I could have that will help me to succeed. So I started by what is not available in Utah? And I thought, hmm, there is no a Hispanic newspaper here. So probably that's what I'm gonna do. So I just started the newspaper. And the first newspaper <laughs> took us a month to do it. So you can imagine how fresh the news were. Since the beginning, my dream was integration. So I decided, okay, we will have bilingual editorials. And so I thought, how can I make people start placing advertising? And I said, I need to get a couple of companies that are powerful here. So I went to visit with them and I told them, I will donate the full page in my newspaper. You don't have to pay me anything. But if you wanna outreach the Hispanic community, I will give you the ad for free, but you gave me the ad totally ready. And for them, what's a good deal? So they say, okay, let's do it. My next challenge came when I didn't have cash flow. So I started thinking, okay, I will have to close the newspaper. And at that point, I visited with late Senator Pete Suazo. And I told him, I have to close the newspaper. And he told me, no, you cannot do that, Gladys. That's the voice of the community. So he told me, how much money do you need? And I said, $10,000 cash flow. So he told me, have you been rejected by any bank? And I said, yes. Do you have a letter? Yes, I do. And he said, well, that's all we need. There is an organization called Utah Microenterprise Loan. So we can apply with the letter of denial. You do a business plan, and I'll help you to present to the committee. I got the loan. And the day that I got the loan, I took a photocopy of the check, and then at night, I wrote an outline of my vision of what will be a business center resource for minorities, where people will be able to get education, how to write a business plan, how to apply for loans. And at the same time, I will team up with banks to have source of capital available for them. In 2002, when Pizzuazo died, I decided that I wanted 
to honor his legacy and I asked authorization to his family to use his name and to create the Suazo Center nonprofit. And we have served between seven and 8,000 companies since the inception of the center. One of those companies is actually a change of nine supermarkets. It is owned by a Mexican woman and we helped her with the first little store and later on when she wanted to open the first big supermarket in a Latino mall. A team of eight people were helping her to create all the business plan and she got a, a loan for 700000 Today, she gives employment to over 500 people. For me, the American dream is not about what the government does for us or who is the president. For me, it is about contributing our talents to worthy causes. It's about alleviating the suffering of those in need. It's about being a valuable part of the country that is now our home. It's learning the language and not having fear of expressing ourselves, even if we have a strong accent. I consider myself that I have fully lived the American dream. I continue living the American dream. And you've been listening to Gladys Gonzalez, founder of the Suazo Center, which helps Hispanic entrepreneurs create their own American dream. And you can learn more about their work and support them at suazocenter.org. That's S-U-A-Z-O center.org. Gladys's story, so many immigrant stories. I know my grandfather's story, a pizzeria in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and my grandfather on the other side, Lebanese, an embroidery factory. Businesses help fuel the American dream for both of them. And both, by the way, struggled as immigrants. And it is no easy thing to move from another country to a new country, learn the language, oftentimes lose your credentials, Gladys was, a, was an executive at a bank and came to the country, and that expertise and experience just wasn't honored. And so she was cleaning floors, but with patience and with diligence, ended up living her own version of the American dream. A great immigrant story, Gladys Gonzalez's story, and a great American dreamer's story here on Our American Stories. And send your American dreamer stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We know they're out there by the millions. Your American Dreamer stories, your family's story, your immigrant story, here to OurAmericanNetwork.org.